37 through 31. However, uh, the emphasis of the sermon is solely one verse, verse 28, uh, reading, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. But let us uh, see or hear the surrounding context. Beginning in verse 27, Paul says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Amen. Uh, I, I don't know why I said amen there, but I guess it's fine to say amen there. Uh, let us let us pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful for your word, and uh, we 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 do want to say amen to it always. Uh, so so who knows why that was there? But we certainly are in agreement, and and we want we want to say amen to the sermon too. God, we pray that you would uh, open up your word to us and and help us to see what it is you would have us to see. Uh, now through the preaching, and that the word would come to us with a new and a fresh power. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at uh, verses 21 through 26 as one section, uh, but you could look at it another way. You could look at verses 21 through 31 as its own section and really seeing uh, 21 through 26 stating salvation. And uh, the central features of salvation and then verses 27 through 31 as the conclusion of that statement. Uh, Looking at it that way, we note in these verses and particularly in verse 28, which is our focus, what John Murray calls the note of decisive inference and confidence. In other words, the unmistakable clarity that we have now arrived at and that Paul is expressing having set forth so clearly the main features of salvation and and of the gospel in verses 21 through 26, he now sets forth what are uh, these evident and confident points of conclusion. Supposing we are clear as to the nature of salvation as set forth in verses 21 through 26, then we will be clear as to these other things as well. And what are they? Well, To summarize the message of these verses, Paul states three confident conclusions or inferences of the doctrine of of salvation and of free grace. The first is, as stated in verse 27, that boasting is excluded, that is a boasting in self. On what basis, he asks, on a law of works that is on the principle of works? No, he says, on the basis of the law of faith. Again, read principle based on the the principle of faith as expressed in verses 21 through 26. The law of faith states that salvation is the free gift of God, which is received from uh, from God by man. The gift of salvation, as Paul says, which is set forth on the cross and received by faith alone from man. And this is what makes boasting impossible Paul says, because man is saved as a free gift, not as a result of anything he does. That is the law of faith, as stated in verse 27. And so he restates again in verse 28 the basis of this point, or the reason for it. In essence, summarizing again the message of 21 through 26. 
Boasting in any form is excluded because, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The second inference is stated in verses 29 and 30, that distinctions are abolished, for God is one, and so there's only one way of salvation for all. And the third conclusion in verse 31 is that the gospel of free grace does not abolish the law, but it establishes it. Just as Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law, but to establish it. Those are the three points that will be the focus of the next sermon, which will not occur actually for three weeks because I'm off next week. uh, And then the first week of the new year, I plan to preach uh, a special sermon. And then we will resume Romans on January 9th. And we will look at those three points from Romans chapter three, verses 27 through 31. The focus for now is simply on the statement which is made in verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. That is a decisive conclusion, which is based upon not only what he just said in verse 27, but more broadly from what was said in verses 21 through 26, and even before that. In reality, we could say that this point of conclusion, therefore we know, is the result of all that Paul has said up to this point. The whole of the epistle leading up to this single verse has led to this point of triumphant conclusion. And it isn't the only time we'll see this. This is something of Paul's characteristic method. There's many high points where he triumphantly concludes something based upon all that he's been saying. It all leads to this. And this verse should be seen in that way, which is why it is deserving of its own sermon. This triumphant statement of the gospel of free grace is found in Jesus Christ. And the gospel of free grace means this. It means that a man is saved or he is justified by faith and not by works. Indeed, Paul says, apart from works, justification is not a matter of works. It comes to the man who does not work, who has no works, as he later says in chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And so as a first point, we need to explore the contrast that Paul is setting forth. We know that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He is stating justification in terms of a contrast. The contrast is between faith and works. It is the same contrast that is found in the prior verse. Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Again, the contrast is between faith and works. There are, in essence, Paul is saying two laws or two principles of justification. Justification can either be by works or it can be by faith. And setting them in contrast, Paul is saying that if by one, it cannot be by the other. If a man is justified by faith, then his justification cannot be by works in any sense. Just as if we were to say his justification were by works, then it could not be by faith in any sense. Thus, the contrast which he is setting forth is absolute. And that is because faith and works represent two opposing systems, two opposite ways of justification. Don't hear me saying two different ways of justification, but two opposite ways of justification. And the reason for this is not hard to find. Faith and works, let me be clear, are not at odds in every sense, as we will later see when we come to James. But when it comes to justification, they are at odds. 
Justification, as Paul has been describing it, is God's judicial declaration that we are righteous. It is thus forensic. It is legal. It places us in the courtroom of God, or if you prefer, at the bar of his justice at the last day. And it considers our standing there before God as a guilty sinner. And it entertains the question, how is it possible that God, so righteous and holy God, would declare the sinner to be just or righteous before, the, again, the bar of his justice? And there are, scripturally speaking, only two possible ways for this to happen. Either God will justify us on that day for our works because we had no sin and because we lived a perfect life in conforming to his law. Because, in other words, we were actually righteous, he will declare that we are righteous, thus justifying us. Or he will justify us by faith because we are not personally righteous. Those are the two ways. Justification by faith involves imputation. That is one of the many matters that chapter 4 will make clear to us. In other words, asking the question, how is it that a sinner would be accounted righteous at the bar of God's justice. The answer is imputation. I think we can set that aside for chapter 4. For, for now, we'll simply notice the contrast again. The two manners or methods of justification. And again, the point is, as Paul is stating it, that it is either one or the other. It cannot be both. It cannot be blended. If by faith, then it cannot be by works and vice versa. And in order to appreciate this point... We must appreciate the precise difference between faith and works that is in view. Or as John Murray says, the specific quality of faith that causes it to differ from works. What is it about faith that makes it different from works or, or even opposite? And this is what John Murray says. The specific quality of faith is trust and commitment to another. Faith is self-renouncing. Works are self-congratulatory. Faith looks to what God does. Works have respect to what we are and do. Now, I think that is a very helpful summary of the contrast which is in view. The two laws that are at odds, the law of works and the law of faith. The law of faith says, if I am to be justified, it must be on the basis of something other than what I am or do. I must find a righteousness outside of myself. Or as Luther called it, an alien righteousness. Alien that is to myself. Because looking to myself, I find none. And finding that righteousness in the blood and in the perfect life of Jesus Christ, I receive and rest upon that alone for my salvation. Now that is how faith operates. It receives, it rests, it accepts. It relies solely on Jesus Christ, his blood and righteousness. It makes all to depend upon him and none or nothing to depend upon me. Again, as Murray says, faith looks to what God does. Works have respect to what we are and do. But so the principle of works on the other side says something entirely different. It says if God will ever justify me, if he will ever regard and count me as one who is righteous and thus worthy of eternal life, he will do so on the basis of my life and my character, what I am and what I do. Works, rather than looking for righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ and relying on that, looks to self and relies on self. It is self-reliant, it is self-congratulatory, whereas 
Faith is reliant on another and boasts only in the Lord. Well, obviously, everything Paul has said up to this point, and you can see here how verse 28 is seen as a broader conclusion to the whole of the epistle up to this point, everything he has said has precluded the law of works in any way. Man is too sinful to stand before God and be declared as one who is personally righteous. Paul has said, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, and there's many such statements. And so we know with Paul that a man is not able to be justified by his works. We know that that is impossible. Other men may not know it, but we do. And we thank God for that knowledge. It is our confident and assured knowledge. But that isn't the only thing we know. We also know that a man can be justified before God, not by his works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, we know that a man cannot be justified by works, but we also know that a man can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, which is and has been the whole message of the gospel is presented in the book of Romans. And as you find throughout the New Testament. And we see clearly why this is not because of what man is in his position before God as a sinner. But because of what God has done in setting forth his son as a propitiation for sin. Verse 25. This is what tells us conclusively and decisively that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Romans chapter three, verse 28. In other words, to put it as provocatively as Luther did, man is justified by faith alone. And that's a common statement, isn't it? Faith alone. But that isn't what Paul literally said, is it? And yet that's how Luther translated this verse. We know that a man is justified by faith alone, apart from the deeds of the law. The question has always been, was Luther right to do this in his German translation of the New Testament? And we must be honest that from the, the standpoint of pure words, the exact words that we find in the Greek, he was not, which is why you will not find it in any of the modern translations, at least insofar as I know. The word alone, again, cannot be found in the Greek in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. But from the standpoint of meaning, Luther was right. For that word alone captures the precise, precise meaning of the contrast in view. Faith is alone in our justification. It justifies apart from works, that is, in the absence of works. There are no works in the life of the man who has faith. We'll see that clearly in Romans chapter 4. No works he can perform to offer to God which would cause God to justify him. God looks upon him rather as one who has no works, who only has faith. And he justifies him solely on the basis of his faith in Jesus. That is how justification works. It operates by faith alone. And let me just ask you then, as a point of application, whether you are clear about this. Are we clear that faith as it justifies is always alone? That it operates in the absence of good works? Or are we still trying to sneak our works in to suggest that the reason God justifies us is because we're somehow worthy or that we really ought to be justified by him? 
Well, if you're suggesting this, then what you're really saying is that justification is by works after all, and that it really isn't by faith in any sense. For if it was by faith, faith understood as receiving and relying on Christ alone, then you will see why it cannot at the same time include human works. In a sense, when we look at the the, the verse which comes before next time, we will see it is really just a matter of what you're boasting in. That's what tells you whether you are operating by faith or by works. Are you boasting in Jesus Christ alone or are you still boasting in self? And so faith and works from the standpoint of justification are opposed. That's really the first point here. The contrast between the two. They're diametrically opposed. As soon as one enters in, the other is thrown out. Either a man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ or else by his own works. There's no middle ground. There's no room for a blended or a nuanced position. Romans chapter 3 verse 28 is one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible as to how a man is saved. And so we can understand why this verse became one of the central, uh, not only one of the central points of uh, of the Reformation, but also a central point of contention in their battle with Rome. The the reformers were ever contending for faith alone in justification. The Roman Catholics, as their opponents, were not. They were contending for justification by faith plus works. And so that brings us to the second and the final point. Seeing this is so, we are confronted in some sense with the exact problem the reformers themselves were. Camping out on Romans chapter 3 verse 28 as they did and declaring this as the clearest summation of our position and our belief in the gospel. There are those who are ready to pinpoint what they believe is the weak link in our position. For they are also aware that our belief in scripture as stated in the doctrine of sola scriptura or scripture alone, another battle cry of the Reformation, is equally precious to us. But here our opponents, as in the days of the Reformation, point to another scripture which would, or which it would seem, causes our position to be called into question, if not fall apart completely. And that passage is James chapter 2. In fact, if you were to study uh, many of the debates in the era era of the Reformation, uh, you would see that often it was just Romans chapter 3 pitted against James chapter 2, especially Romans chapter 3 verse 28 pitted against James chapter 2 verse 24. Let me read that verse uh, just, to, just to help you to see how, uh, how difficult the problem appears. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Or verse, uh, which verse is it? Well, I won't I won't spend any more time looking for it, but there's another verse like it in those verses. Uh, That's what the reformers and the Roman Catholics were debating. Uh, I will also say that in my own experience, I have literally experienced this contending for faith alone with the Roman Catholic from Paul and the Roman Catholic contending for faith plus works from James. And so the debate goes. Question is whether we have any answer in it that answer to this, which is consistent with our high view of scripture. Paul says faith without works. 
We've seen that uh, unmistakably. You can't sneak works in. He is ex- as exclusive as can be. But James says faith with works and never in the absence of them. It would appear on the face of, uh, of the matter, these two passages are actually saying the exact opposite things. And thus it presents to us one of the greatest difficulties to our belief in the gospel that can be found in scripture. The appearance that even scripture is at odds on this most crucial point. Does this not call into question our belief or at least our understanding of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3 verse 28? Perhaps what I was saying wasn't right after all under the first heading. We had said that this was our decisive and decided conviction. But perhaps when we read James chapter 2, it isn't so clear after all that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Now, this is the dilemma not only which the reformers faced in their polemics or their debates with Rome in seeking to establish with Paul the absolute clarity of the gospel in an unmistakable way. But this is also the dilemma that every honest and sincere Christian faces in his own reading of the Bible. I think I understand Paul, but what about James? How is it that I can see in Scripture a full agreement? And how is it then that my convictions will be shaped and formed like Paul's into an assured confidence so that we can say we know with certainty and conviction that a man is justified by faith apart from works? And so the difficulty or the appearance of contradiction needs to be dealt with if we are to share Paul's confidence in the gospel, as stated in chapter 3, verse 28, or as stated in chapter 1, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, let me consider first, under this heading, the false solutions that have been set forth. There are at least three, if not more, but I only want to look at two of them. In the interest of time, the first false solution in looking at Romans 3 and James 2 is uh, what I would call the kind of mental gymnastics that is often imposed upon Scripture, which says Paul and James are, in fact, saying the same thing. That there is no disagreement. In fact, they're arguing the same exact point. I always find these sorts of approaches to be dishonest on their face. It's clear to any honest reader of scripture, that Paul and James are not saying the same thing. And it is simply dishonest to suggest that they are. The second false solution, which you find in the days of the Reformation, in the case of Luther, is to suggest, sharing Paul's confidence, that James is simply wrong. When he would contend for Paul's gospel, and someone would say, Yes, but doesn't James say say this? He would simply attack James and his epistle and say, don't bring to me that epistle of straw. For Paul, the ultimate or or Luther, rather, the ultimate limits test, at least in his earlier days of the of the authority of Scripture could be found insofar as it set forth the gospel, which was not, I think we could agree, the best view of Scripture. But so strong uh, was his zeal for the gospel that it led him to this conclusion. To dismiss James, which was admittedly lamentable. Well, there's other false solutions we can consider, but since those are the two main ones, I'll leave it there. Neither of these solutions will satisfy for obvious reasons. We don't want to discard James, nor do we want to artificially suggest that James and Paul are really saying the same thing, when again, it's obvious they aren't. 
And so we must try to resolve the dilemma in some other way. And without minimizing the apparent difficulty over these two passages so many Christians have found over the, diffic- uh, over the decades, I would uh, suggest to you that the solution is actually far easier than people realize. The solution is as simple as saying that James and Paul are not talking about the same thing. There is simply no use in trying to make them say the same thing when they are both covering different ground. Of course, we get hung up on James chapter 2, verse 24. I'll read it again. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Uh, Verse 21 was the other verse I was looking for earlier. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? So verse 21, verse 24 Those are somewhat stunning to us when we read them. And it's so stunning to us, it's almost difficult for us to read this passage in a way that is honest and edifying. It gives us what I would call mental anxiety in reading James chapter 2. I even once heard a Christian pastor, a reformed Christian pastor, say, to be honest, I wish James had never said this. But he did. He did say it. He said it with all the authority that Paul did as an apostle of God. But if we would take the time setting aside our mental anxiety to understand what James is saying on his own terms, we would realize there's no difficulty to to be found here. Let me uh, just deal with both men in turn. Paul. Paul was focused in Romans on how a man is justified. Concerning this, we have so many confident and clear statements, such as what we are considering today. Romans chapter three, verse twenty eight. Man is justified by faith apart from works. That's the focus of Paul. He is justified, as Luther said, by faith alone, which, as we've seen, is a faithful rendering of Paul's meaning and his burden. But James is not talking about justification. Not in the sense that Paul was. At no point is James' focus upon how a man is justified before God. It is true he uses the word twice, I think, maybe more, at least in those two verses. But even then, we have to understand that words are capable of different meanings in different contexts. For instance, this is what we've been doing in Romans. Paul uses the word righteousness in different ways. It can mean the righteousness by which he justifies the sinner. That's the main meaning. But we just saw in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, that it can't possibly mean that. That righteousness in that passage means the inherent righteousness of God that he's revealing to man. Now, what determines the meaning of the word? Not simply looking at the word and camping out there, but obviously the context. You have to look at the context of what is being said, and then you will understand or determine the meaning, the precise meaning of the word. Another word in Paul that has been used and will continue to be used variously is the word law. Again, we saw it today. When he says a law of faith or the law of works, he's not talking about the moral law. He's talking about the law as a principle. And it's clear that he is. If you simply take the time to consider what he's saying. Again and again, we've allowed the context to define the meaning of specific words. And justification, as Paul uses it, is not the only way the word might be used. Justify can mean, in the case of Paul... 
judicial declaration of righteousness. But it can also mean simply to justify in the sense of proving someone or something as right or true. For instance, when Jesus says wisdom is justified by her deeds, in the sense that it is vindicated, that's an alternate translation for the word justify, you get the clear sense. He isn't talking about a courtroom. He's simply talking about our sense of what is right. Wisdom is seen to be right. She is justified. She's proved to be true by what she does. And so, in order to eliminate the mental anxiety, in our own study of the Bible, we have to be careful. We can't get hung up on words. We are interested, rather, in meaning and in argument. And the question which we have is, what is James' argument? What is his meaning when he speaks of justification and so on? What is he contending for in verses 24, or, or excuse me, 14 through 26? Well, if you look at the first verse and you follow his argument all the way through, he's not saying, how is a sinner declared to be righteous in the courtroom of God? That is clearly what Paul is arguing for. That's not what James is arguing for. He is considering and he is contending for faith. He is asking the question, what is true faith and what is false faith? He is exploring how you can tell the difference between the two. Saving faith and faith which does not save. Who is the man who has true faith? The kind of faith that saves. And that is in fact a very helpful discussion. In light of what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 28. For if we know that a man is justified by faith alone and not by works. The immediate next question is who is the man who has faith? And that's the question that that James answers. And by the way, Paul will go on to answer in Romans chapter 4. And James' primary contention in these verses, his argument, is that the reality of true faith is seen not in the absence of works, but in the presence of them. You can know a man has true and saving faith. The kind of faith that saves in the presence and not in the absence of work. Works. Uh, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Or as some translations have it, I think, helpfully, can that faith save him? The man who claims to have faith but has no works. Immediately, you see in verse 14, he's not talking about justification. Understand his subject. He's talking about faith. Can the kind of faith which has no works, which only talks but does nothing... Can that save a man? In fact, can it justify him in Paul's sense? And his answer is no. Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if if it does not have works, is dead. Again, the real test he's saying as to whether a man has faith is if he has works. And this ought to be obvious, he says, for even demons have a kind of faith. But they're devils and don't tell me that they are saved. That's what he argues in verses 18 through 20. Even the demons tremble. They know that God is one. They, they believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And yet they're damned. They're devils. Don't suggest to me that that faith which the demons or the devils have is saving. And so where does the difference appear? 
What is the kind of faith that deserves to be called true and saving? He says the reality of faith appears in the presence of works. And this is evident in the case of Abraham, verses 21 through 24, which is an interesting place to go because that's precisely where Paul goes in Romans chapter 4, having stated his case in chapter 3, verse 28. Both men, in making their point, point to Abraham. And what he says in verses 21 through 24, we've already read them, is that the reality of his faith appeared in the presence of his works. That's the point I keep making. In other words, if you do ask the question what it was God was putting to, uh, to the test when he called Abraham to sacrifice his son, the answer is faith. He was putting Abraham, the believer, to, to the test, or his faith to the test, whether he really believed in God. And you can see that in the end of the episode when he says, now I know that you fear God. God wanted to see it. He wanted to know it. And this appeared in his works, in offering his son on the altar. In other words, again, Abraham didn't just say that he believed. Even the demons can do that. But his actions backed it up. He made his life to depend upon his faith. He was able to prove his claim. And so it became clear even to God that he really did believe, fulfilling the scripture which, which says... And so scripture was fulfilled, which says, verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That is a quotation of Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, which is a fascinating reference. Because that is a statement of forensic justification. Abraham was justified by faith. That is the contention of Genesis. That is what uh, that is what James is referring to here. It is translated, at least in my translation, accounted. He believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But again, don't get caught up on words. He was justified by faith. By faith. It is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. And so do you notice that even James refers to Abraham's forensic justification, the judicial declaration by God that he was considered righteous in his sight? And James has no interest in denying this doctrine. He is merely asking the question, how did it appear that he really did have faith? How did it appear to God and for us to see as we read of his life? Again, what was on trial in the whole episode of the, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac was the faith of Abraham. And what made it clear that Abraham had the kind of faith that saves and that justifies that God looks upon and credits righteousness to was his works. It proved that he really did believe. And it is in this sense that James says twice, verse 21 and verse 24, that he was justified by works and not by faith alone, justified here carrying the meaning, declared by God to be a true believer. He was justified in the sense that his faith was now proven to be true and genuine and saving. And so when God says, now I know that you fear God, God was telling him that he accepted his faith as real. Again, what made it clear was not that he said he believed, but that his works backed it up. He was, or, or his works rather, justified or proved the reality of his faith. 
But does this mean, and this is the kind of argumentation that you will find going back to the Reformation and ever since, does this mean that works are brought in the back door because they're somehow included in our definition of faith? And thus are somehow included in some subtle form in our understanding of how a man is justified before God. That would have to be the case if you included works in your understanding of justifying faith. And obviously not, for that would be to deny the clear teaching of Scripture. Consider Abraham again and the order of those chapters in Genesis that James is calling to mind. We see that his justification comes first, chapter 15, verse 6. He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. But then what happens in chapter 22 Uh, Some 25 years later, I think it is, is that his faith was put on trial. It was put to the test. It was tried by God, in other words, as something that needs to be proved or justified as true and real and saving. Even God wants to know if we really mean what we say we believe. Or whether we just have the faith of devils. But what we see in Genesis chapter 22 is Abraham standing out as the man of faith, the true believer. How do we know? Because he justified his own claim that he believed by his life and his actions. In other words, by his works. So we still maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Looking purely at justification as a forensic matter before the bar of God's justice, we see works do not come in at all. But when we consider how it is that the reality of a man's faith, his claim to forensic justification is proved true as a believer, that is another matter. And that is where works come in. Do not suggest a man who has faith like a devil is saved. That is James' point. Or rather, do not suggest that the man who has faith might live like a devil. No, if you say this, you might as well say that the devils themselves have faith. For even they know that God is one and that Jesus is his son. But the faith that saves is first a trust and a reliance on Jesus Christ for salvation. And it is only that. But then from there it becomes, and you also see the reformers saying this. Capturing the balance of scripture. It becomes having received and rested and relied on Jesus Christ. The fountain of all kinds of good works. As a continual testimony to the reality of the man's faith. The believer. To, con- to quote our confession on justification. Summing up these two points. Faith thus re- receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. Is the alone instrument of our justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. In other words, if you look upon the sinner at the moment of his justification, you will see that he has no works. He only has faith. But if you look at his life after that, the life that he lives by faith, you will see that his faith leads him to have all kinds of works if his faith is real and true. And it is in that sense that faith is never alone, not in the life of the believer, but ever works by love, even as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Amen. And let us now come to the table.